Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So, you know, one thing I'm pretty terrible at is time management, right? Yep. Like, I always have too many commitments and try to get too many things done and end up a little late on everything. But one of my heroes in this regard is Sandra Day O'Connor. I can't say that I knew that she was known for her uh, time management. Yeah, she was just a force at making things happen. Like, one of my favorite examples is this one time when she was in the Arizona State Legislature. And this was before she was on the Supreme Court. And... It needed to pass its new budget before midnight, and everyone just assumed the thing was impossible. But O'Connor, she just insisted that they'd be done by 6 p.m. <laughs> and from her perspective, there was no other option because one of her sons was about to leave for summer camp, and she had promised to be home to bake him cookies in time before he headed off. Oh, that's pretty great. So were they <laughs> successful? Did they get it pushed through in time? Yeah, because she's amazing. Like, she was just insanely diplomatic, but also no-nonsense and super efficient. <laughs> I mean, the idea of getting unwilling sides to agree and compromise feels like a force we could use right now. Yeah. But the budget passed with plenty of time, and... Presumably, Sandra's son went on to be the most popular kid at summer camp. <laughs> but uh, Sandra Day O'Connor's life is a pretty amazing one. And that's what we're about to dive into. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, waving his homemade SCOTUS pennant. It's <laughs> impressive. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone so fired up about the judicial branch. <laughs> yeah, someone's been practicing his needlepoint. <laughs> well, in this case, Tristan's enthusiasm is totally warranted, because today's show is about a legal legend who's truly worth celebrating, and that's Sandra Day O'Connor. She often cast the deciding vote on all kinds of deadlock political and social issues. And whether you agree with her politics or not, there's no denying the impact O'Connor has had, not just on our legal institutions, but also on the roles women serve within them. And as the first female justice, she showed the world exactly why women deserve a place on our nation's highest court. That's right. So 
I've been fascinated with Sandra Day for a while. And as you know, I commissioned a story on her at Mental Floss because I firmly believe more people need to know her extraordinary story. Actually, I, I think if I remember this, but I wanted to pitch a TV show on her called Sandra Day O'Connor Strip Mall Attorney. I don't know how that never happened. <laughs> I know. I mean, Notorious RBG gets all this attention, but Sandra also deserves to be a folk hero. And we'll get into all of that. But <laughs> since you're bringing up her biggest claim to fame, I wanted to mention the acronym O'Connor came up with for her achievements. Uh, you know, she was appointed to be the first woman on the Supreme Court in 1981 by President Reagan. But rather than spell out the title all the time, O'Connor liked to abbreviate it to F-W-O-T-S-C. <laughs> Just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? So was this really something she liked to go by? Yeah, she chose it herself, but it's got a good backstory. So apparently the New York Times published an article in 1983, and it lamented, Is no Washington name exempt from shorthand? The chief magistrate sometimes goes by POTUS. The nine men who interpret them are often the SCOTUS. But the people who enact them are still, for better or worse, Congress. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a moderately witty joke, right? No, but uh, <laughs> Saturday O'Connor had her own problem with the article. In a letter to the editor, she wrote, According to the information available to me, and which I had assumed was generally available, for over two years now, SCOTUS has not consisted of nine men. <laughs> if you have any contradictory information, I would be grateful if you would forward it, as I'm sure the POTUS, the SCOTUS, and the undersigned the F-W-O-T-S-C would be most interested in seeing it. Uh, uh, I like that she schooled the New York Times <laughs> and coined her own nickname in one fell swoop there. Yeah, it's pretty great. But I'm guessing part of the reason she was so peeved by the article was that she'd already dealt with so many public slights by that point. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, O'Connor received a staggering 60,000 letters during her first year on the job. And while most of the correspondence was positive, she got a good amount of hate mail. Like, the negative letters were generally baseless enough to brush off, and it was stuff like, back to your kitchen and home, female. This is a job for a man, and only he can make the rough decisions. Mm. Just such a terrible note. Another person wrote in and said, being a female justice was better suited for Marxist-related feminists rather than a wife and a mother who respects the psychological component of a family. I, I mean, the letters just poured in. Good Lord. I mean, I can see why she would have bristled at the time story, and especially after having to sit through two years of this stuff. Exactly. Even though she had been handpicked by the president and was unanimously confirmed by the Senate, there was still this large chunk of the population that couldn't stand the thought of a woman being in such a powerful position. And actually, how she was picked by Reagan was pretty fascinating. We should talk a little about that in a bit. Well, definitely. But, you know, thankfully, O'Connor was made of much sterner stuff than her detractors and her childhood upbringing all but assured that. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Sandra Day was born and raised on her family's enormous cattle ranch. This was on the New Mexico-Arizona border, and it's called the Lazy Bee Ranch. It's actually named after a bit of rancher lingo. I, I didn't realize this before, but apparently when a letter used on a cattle brand is applied in a crooked manner so that the letter is on its side, in this case the bee, it's said to be lazy. Oh, I never knew that. I don't know how both of us missed that because we're, we're cattle ranchers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, big-time cattle aficionados. But uh, the Lazy Bee was actually this massive piece of land. It was 160,000 acres or roughly 250 square miles. And because I know you prefer to, like, get your measurements in relation to Rhode Island, yeah. I did the math, and the ranch breaks down to about one-fifth the size of Rhode Island. I really appreciate you doing the math for me on that one. But, you know, we were talking about this a little earlier. And, and just because the Day family had so much land, that doesn't mean they were living well. In fact, the property, which had been passed down for a couple of generations, it really wasn't worth all that much when Sanders' dad inherited it. 
It was a one-bedroom house that they lived in there, didn't have electricity, didn't have running water. They're basically scraping together enough income just to survive in this constant struggle there. But the family had an unrelenting work ethic. So they'd repair wells and raise cattle for slaughter. And the really crazy thing is that with all that acreage and about a 1,000 head of cattle to look after, the Day family kept this ridiculously tiny staff on hand to oversee it. I think there were just like five full-time employees year-round and another few that came on for the big roundups that happened each spring and fall. So it was a really, really small crew. I know for a lot of land, which is probably why Sandra had to help out so much herself. I mean, she grew up around literal cowboys, and at a young age, she was branding cattle, driving tractors, and even warding off coyotes with her trusty twenty-two caliber rifle. I mean, this is exactly the childhood that you expect from any Supreme Court justice, right? I know. Well, not at all. But yeah. uh, the hard scrabble lifestyle did teach Sandra all kinds of important life lessons. For example, there was one ranch hand in particular who she credits for some of the early lessons in fairness and empathy. His name was Rafael Estrada. And he's got an amazing story, too. He was this illiterate Mexican-American who'd worked for the family his whole life. And he grew so adept at ranching that he could actually identify almost every cow on the ranch just by the look. But uh, Sandra later wrote of him, he knew he was very good at what he did, and he demanded a high standard from those around him. But he was dealt with what many would say was a poor hand in life. He was small, crippled, fatherless, a minority race in his birthland, but he played the hand he was dealt like a master. From Rastas, we learned the contentment of doing the best you can with what you have. Yeah, and you know, you hear a lot about her practicality on the bench coming from her lessons that she learned back on the farm, and it was really a deep part of who she was. But I know her father also imparted some tough wisdom in those early years. You know, there's that great story, I think we've talked about this before, where she learned, you know, how to change a tire when she got a flat. Yeah, you should tell the listeners because it's such a great story and it's pretty cinematic. Right, so this was back when Sandra was just about 15, I think, and this was in 1945. So she'd offered to bring lunch to her father and his ranch hands. They were busy branding cattle on the far end of the property. So early that hot summer morning, she heads out in their old Chevy pickup and heads out to the desert by herself. She's cruising along this remote dirt road, and she suddenly gets a flat tire. Now, she's never changed a flat before, but she understands the basics. So she spends the next hour stranded in the heat. She figures out how to jack the car up, starts wrestling with the rusty lug nuts, but the things won't budge. She starts to panic for a minute because it's almost lunchtime and everybody is counting on her to get there with the food. Then she fits the wrench around each of the nuts and starts jumping on it with all her weight until finally the rust gives way and she manages to get the tire changed. So, I mean, it sounds like the success story and this lesson in perseverance. Exactly. And that's no doubt how Sandra viewed it. In fact, she proudly explained the whole story when she finally made it to where the crew was working. You know, she'd gotten up early that morning, but then got stranded in the middle of nowhere with this flat tire, a bunch of rusted lug nuts, but she'd arrived late, well after lunchtime, so her father didn't share any of her sense of victory. He just kind of bawled her out, saying, you should have started a lot earlier. You need to expect anything out there. Which she really takes to heart, right? Well, yeah, Sandra wrote of the experience later on. She said, I had expected a word of praise for changing the tire, but to the contrary, I realized that the only thing was expected an on-time lunch. No excuses accepted. And that story sounds like a folksy story a politician would sell you, but you can actually see how it made her work twice as hard and be prepared for any situation. I know that when Ken Starr went to vet her for the Supreme Court, 
this was when she was just a nominee, he mentioned that it was like she'd been preparing for the Supreme Court all her life. At the time, people assumed Sander was this lightweight and that she was only on the list because Reagan had made this campaign promise that he'd add a woman to the Supreme Court if he had the chance. But when Starr met her, and she really did have this non-traditional path to the Supreme Court, he was floored by her depth of knowledge. But let's get back to the ranch. While her dad was tough, he clearly had this softer side as well, and he and Sandra's mother recognized how smart she was and knew that she couldn't get the formal education she deserved on the ranch. I mean, she kind of always lived in two worlds. There's a great line in that Mental Floss story where her days could start with her reading Nancy Drew lying on her back and end with her having to mercy kill a calf. It's sort of incredible. But her double life grew even more extreme when her parents sent her to live with her grandmother in El Paso, Texas. And that's where she attended this all-girls private school for her primary education. It gave her this view into high society, and it kind of put a new polish on her. She learned how to dress and charm people and all these various social graces, in addition to giving her much better access to studies. But then, just a year after the tire incident, Sandra was allowed to skip two grades and go straight to Stanford University at the age of 16. Wow. I mean, again, it just points to how bright she is. Mm -hmm. I feel like the college bit of her story does get glossed over sometimes. I was looking a little bit deeper into it in our research here, and it's amazing. I mean, there's these two incredibly formative things that happen to her while she's there at Stanford. Now, the first was when she met a law professor named Harry Rathman. And he was one of those professors who would hold these informal gatherings at his home every Sunday. He'd invite students to talk about the meaning of life and all these other high-minded matters. Now, you might remember that Sandra had enrolled as an econ major. (laughs) I didn't. But it was her encounters with Rathman that convinced her to change course. The professor would make these forceful arguments about civic duty and the satisfaction that comes from serving your community. And for Sandra, who'd grown up as this independent cowgirl, something like 25 miles from her closest neighbor, it really did strike a chord with her. So much so that she decided to go to law school and devote her life to public service. I mean, it always comes down to a great professor, right? Yeah. But, okay, so what's the other life-changing thing that happens while Sandra's in college? Well, after she graduated at the age of 20, Sandra started attending Stanford Law School, which is actually where she met the love of her life and future husband. And that was John J. O'Connor. And their courtship story is actually pretty cute. So I'm going to share it here. So John was a fellow law student and he and Sandra were assigned a project to work on together. And they weren't quite finished when the library was closing up one night. So John suggested they finish their work over a beer at a little place he knew just down the road. And apparently they really hit it off there because, you know, not only did they do the same thing the next night, They actually went out for a solid 40 nights in a row. (laughs) I never heard that. Did she uh, did she ever take him home to the ranch? Oh, she did. And it was just as awkward as you might (laughs) expect. So the first time John came to meet Sandra's parents, her father was actually branding some calves. So they went down to the corral so John could say hello to him. And now the thing to know is that when male calves are branded, the ranchers generally castrate them as well. <laughs> oh, no. So I, I think I know where this is going. I'm willing to bet that you do not know where this is going. <laughs> In fact, I'm just going to let Sandra tell the story herself. So according to her, when she and John arrived, quote, my father put a few testicles on some bailing wire and put them in a branding fire. And he said, <laughs> I'll just fix a few of these for you, John. And John, to his credit, took the things off the wire, popped them in his mouth and said, very good, Mr. Day. Very good. Oh, and no sauce. (laughs) I would be so far down the street by that point, but that is real love. And, you know, Sandra obviously knew John was a keeper at that point, so it's really no surprise that they got married soon after, and that was in 1952. 
which happened to be the same year they graduated from law school. All right. Well, what do you say we move off the ranch and talk about Sandra's early law career? That sounds great. But first, let's take a quick break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the life and times of Sandra Day O'Connor. All right, Mango, so I know we're leaving the Lazy Bee Ranch behind, but before we do that, I wanted to share one last reflection on it from the woman herself. And this is from a part in her memoir where she's recounting what it was like to join her father and the ranch crew on these roundups. You know, they had to steer cattle, sleeping out on the open range alongside a bunch of cowboys. So Sandra writes, it had been an all-male domain. Changing it to accommodate a female was probably my first initiation into joining an all-men's club, something I did more than once in my life. After the Cowboys understood that a girl could hold up her end, it was much easier for my sister, my niece, and the other girls and young women who followed to be accepted in that rough-and-tumble world. Yeah, it's amazing to think she was really breaking down barriers for women from the beginning. And it's definitely true what she says about having to fight her way into the boys' clubs. I mean, Sandra was one of the top students in her class at law school. And by the way, she actually ranked third in her class with the top spot going to another future SCOTUS member, William Rehnquist. Hmm. But when she graduated, not a single law firm was willing to hire her. In fact, when she did finally land an interview with a California law firm, it was only because of a favor a, a friend's father had given her. And is that how she got her first job as a lawyer? No, that's not even the case. So when she went to L.A. for the interview, the firm made it clear that they'd never hired a female lawyer before and they didn't intend to start. And instead, they asked her how well she could type and offered to bring her on as a legal secretary. No way. Yeah. Wow. 
it's really crazy to think about how recent a change it is to have women practicing law. It only started happening in the U.S. around World War II, like so many other fields where women started taking these jobs because the men were overseas. Mm -hmm. But even then, the change was exceedingly slow. Even by the time Sandra was looking for work in the early 1950s, only 3% of the country's lawyers were women. The number has risen a great deal since then, obviously, thanks in no small part, of course, to Sandra. But even now, only 33% of the lawyers are female. Which is staggering, right? Like, I, I would have imagined it was much higher. But let's get back to Sandra's job hunt. So the turning point came when she caught wind of a firm in San Mateo that actually had a female lawyer on staff. So she went to the office and asked for a job. But the county attorney there said they didn't have the budget for a new hire or even a place for her to work. But Sandra knew this was the only place where she'd be able to get a foot in the door. So she actually convinced the firm to take her on by agreeing to work for free and a shared desk space with the secretary. I mean, you've got to admire her passion, but man, what a raw deal. Yeah, and, and things didn't really improve on the career front for a while. So after marrying John, they moved to Phoenix, where Sandra opened a little shop. It was this walk-in practice. It was in the strip mall, as I mentioned before. Uh, it was sort of like a Better Call Saul situation, where people would wander in to ask offhand questions about, I don't know, like the legality of something their landlord did, or how to beat a speeding ticket. And it's really kind of upsetting when you think about it. Like, she's this incredible legal mind, third in her class. She edits the law review at Stanford. You know, she she keeps up with this for a few years, all while getting more and more involved with local Republican politics. Yeah, and it's around this time that Sandra actually steps away from her practice for, I think it was like five or six years, to mm -hmm. be a stay-at-home mom for her three boys. And I do say stay-at-home, but honestly, Sandra stayed so busy with all these various volunteer civic and community groups that... It's pretty much a misnomer to say stay at home. I mean, listen to the, the rap sheet that I was looking at here. It says O'Connor served on the governor's committee on marriage and family as an administrative assistant at the Arizona State Hospital. She volunteered at a school for minorities. She wrote test questions for the Arizona bar exam, acted as an advisor to the Salvation Army. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like she did too much staying at home. Not at all. And after the kids were a little older, she went right back to work in earnest. At first, she was a part-time assistant for the attorney general because no private firm was willing to hire her yet. But then the Arizona governor was so impressed with her work that he appointed her to a vacant seat in the state Senate. And the next year, in 1970, Sandra formally won the seat. And just a few months later, her fellow Republicans voted her in as America's first female state majority leader. Wow, it's pretty amazing. Well, she's got all kinds of firsts under her belt when you look at the list. And mm -hmm. as you know, I'm always so impressed by the way she was able to apply her experience, you know, as a mother and a homemaker to this role as a stateswoman, really. Actually, I'm going to quote the mental flaw story you mentioned earlier. And this is from Lizzie Jacobs writing. O'Connor knew what she wanted to remove sexism from the books. She searched for laws biased against women and quietly worked to change them. The Republicans had a razor-thin majority. Negotiations were essential. She regularly hosted parties at her adobe house, inviting leaders from all sides to eat homemade burritos, <laughs> not to broker deals, but to get to know one another. Her cooking was legendary. But at work, she was all business. I'd forgotten that. And I want to eat homemade burritos at Sandra's house. Me too. <laughs> And you're right. It's it's amazing how she was able to balance all these different responsibilities without compromise. And actually, that pretty much takes us up to the time when President Reagan tapped her to replace the retiring Justice Stewart. Yeah, she was serving on the Arizona State Court of Appeals when she was invited to Washington to meet the president back in 1981. And she really didn't want to go, but the two hit it off right away. They were swapping stories about horse riding and the Western way of life. And 
As we talked about before, Reagan had won the woman's vote by campaigning on this promise that he would nominate a woman to the Supreme Court. And in Sandra, he found the perfect candidate. So I, I know there's a lot of Reagan worship for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the things I found fascinating in hearing this story was that his advisors were actively telling him he didn't have to keep his promise. Like, there was so much swirling at the time politically. This was even the year that he was shot in that assassination attempt. And his advisors claimed just having a woman on the list was enough to, you know, appease his voters. But to Reagan's credit, he kept his word. And, of course, conservatives like uh, Phyllis Schafwe and uh, um, Jerry Falwell, they started this write-in to protest the nomination. But once she was sworn in, the then 51-year-old O'Connor set herself apart, not only by her gender and relative youth, but also with this level-headed approach to cases. As one of her clerks, uh, Ron L. Anderson Jones, later recalled, quote, Eternally a ranch girl, she wanted solutions that really worked and had little patience for esoteric theory that had no grounding in reality. Well, and, and that's something we see from the start of her time on the bench. You know, for, for example, the Supreme Court heard a case in 1982 called Mississippi University for Women versus Hogan. Now, this was a case where a male student, Hogan, was suing because he'd been denied admission to an all-female nursing school. And O'Connor actually sided with the student, believing that the gender-based enrollment policy was invalid, as she said, because it, you know, it tends to perpetuate the stereotype view of nursing as this exclusively women's job. And so rather than siding with the women of the college in the short term, O'Connor was taking a practical approach and thinking about helping them break down the stigma that surrounded this nursing profession. And not only that, O'Connor later alluded to the ruling as a way to potentially boost the pay rates, you know, for all these nurses and and thinking about doing so with this influx of male nurses. Hmm. That was, you know, kind of turning the gender wage gap to the women's advantage as much as possible. Yeah, it's pretty clever. And we should definitely talk more about some of her work on the bench. You know, she was there for 20 plus years, not to mention the legacy she left behind after retiring. But first, how about we take a quick break? All right, Mango, it's quiz time. Now, we've got a listener on the line, a regular listener of Part-Time Genius, who actually wrote to us telling us about her love of sloths after we did a nine things on sloths. And she's on the line with us right now. Katie Coyle, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. All right, Katie, you have to tell us, uh, uh, why do you love sloths so much? And was there anything that we missed in that episode that you feel like our, our listeners need to know? You know, I think I love sloths specifically because... Uh, Charles Darwin and Survival of the Fittest should have gotten them already, but they're still kicking. And they are a relic of evolution. <laughs> and once you tell people you love sloths, you get sloth gifts for every possible holiday. So I think I'm a little <laughs> too deep in to give up now. You know, I feel like that's true because we've known a couple of sloth lovers and are, are actually especially at Mental Floss and it did feel like any time a special occasion came around, everyone was giving them sloth gifts. It makes me easier to shop for, so I'm, I'm really helping everyone. Wow, that's so thoughtful of you. And we decided to have Katie on for today's quiz because she has a very special connection to the Supreme Court. Katie, tell us what that is. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I are both sorority sisters. We're <laughs> very good friends, obviously. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, let's get started with the quiz. Number one, Justice Thurgood Marshall was addicted to days of our lives and would often call a recess at 1 p.m. to watch his stories. Supreme or not supreme? 
please let that be supreme. <laughs> it is. <laughs> His wife claimed he would watch anything on TV from wrestling to news to talk shows, but he especially loved Days of Our Lives. One for one. Question number two. The justices enjoy celebrating each other's birthdays, and for years, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Martin, made all the cakes for everyone's birthday. Supreme or not supreme? Supreme. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Marty's fondness for the kitchen began shortly after RBG cooked her first meal for him, apparently. You're uh, doing pretty well so far, Katie. All right, let's see. Question number three. Since 1996, lawyers who argue a case before the Supreme Court get a special keepsake, a Supreme Court sleep mask that reads, Justice is blind. Supreme or not supreme? That sounds a little too weird. I'm going to say not supreme. <laughs> You're right. They don't get a sleep mask, but each council does get two white feather quill pens for their effort. All right. Good job. Okay, two left. Number four. There's an image of Muhammad on the side of the Supreme Court. Supreme or not supreme? You know, despite separation of church and state, I feel like that might be supreme for whatever reason. You're doing amazing, Katie. It's true. While depictions of Muhammad are rare, the prophet is depicted in a relief with other lawmakers and icons of justice, including Solomon, Moses, Confucius, and Hammurabi. All right. Let's see if we can bring it home with the final question and go five for five. Here we go. Justice Rehnquist loved the musical West Side Story so much that he often wore a tiny shark pin on his robes. Supreme or not supreme? As much as I want that to be true, I'm going to say that's not supreme. Oh my gosh, Katie, you went five for five. You're absolutely right. He wasn't a, a West Side Story fan that we know, but he was a huge Gilbert and Sullivan fan. And he actually stitched gold stripes on his robe sleeves as a tribute to it. And he was also a notoriously bad dresser. Wow. All right. So how did uh, how did Katie do today, Mango? She ran the table and uh, went five for five, which gets her the big prize, an official PTG Certificate of Genius and a Part-Time Genius T-shirt. Congrats, Katie. That's wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Katie. Thank you. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Okay, Mango, so what else do you want to cover from O'Connor's time on the Supreme Court? Well, I was always struck by the times when she seemed to go her own way on what are typically partisan issues. I mean, don't get me wrong, O'Connor was a moderate conservative and she tended to vote as such for the most part, but she also had a reputation for caring more about how legal matters would affect individuals than she did for towing the party line or even rigidly adhering to legal precedent. For instance, O'Connor bucked conservative expectations in 1992, and this is when the court had to decide whether it was constitutional to require women to notify their spouses before getting an abortion. And in her written opinion, O'Connor called the measure, quote, repugnant to our present understanding of marriage and of the nature of the rights secured by the Constitution. Women do not lose their constitutionally protected liberty when they marry. Yeah, I remember that. And she actually cast the deciding vote to uphold Roe, if you remember, and and drew a lot of ire from her Republican colleagues, actually. Yeah, O'Connor was responsible for the determining vote of a lot of five to four decisions. And this gave her a reputation as a swing vote, since you really couldn't predict where she'd come down on some of the more divisive issues. But she really hated that term. Yeah, it's something I didn't remember, but but found that interesting in doing the research for the episode. But she never liked being called a swing vote because she thought it implied that you know, maybe she lacked principles and was kind of flighty or fickle in the way she made her decisions. And so she was both praised and criticized for casting these really narrow opinions. And she wasn't as interested in writing law as she was in deciding a case. So she actually listened case by case. And people who have argued in front of her said they really couldn't tell which way she would go just because she, you know, she truly took each case as a learning activity. Well, I mean, agree with them or not, she definitely had principles. And I, I mean, just look at some of her opinions during the George W. Bush administration. In 2000, she cast the deciding vote that ended the Florida recount for the contested presidential race. But then in 2004, she went against the man she helped elect when she faced the Hamdi versus Rumsfeld case. And this was the one where the court was tasked with deciding whether an American citizen is still entitled to due process after being named an enemy combatant by the president. So O'Connor in this one, she voted in favor of due process, right? Yeah. And in her opinion, she reminded her party that a state of war is not a blank check for the president when it comes to the rights of the nation's citizens. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a good bit today about O'Connor's rough and tumble upbringing and her determination in the face of unfair treatment. But I did want to touch a little bit on some of her softer, more playful qualities, because you know, it's a side of Supreme Court justices that we we don't really see that much of, honestly. Sure. So what kind of stuff are you thinking of? Well, I kind of like that even though she had the same work ethic as her father, she still took the time to relax a little bit. You know, for instance, she was an avid tennis player. So for most of the year she was on the bench, she would plan this week-long vacation in July where she and seven of her friends from Arizona, they dubbed themselves the mobile party unit. <laughs> They'd get together to play tennis and golf as well as go horseback riding, even whitewater rafting together. I love that. Another story I like is how O'Connor commandeered the Supreme Court's basketball court so she could hold these women-only yoga and aerobics classes. 
Wait, I think we need to pause for a second. So there's a Supreme Court. There, There's a basketball court at the Supreme Court? Yeah, it's called the highest court in the land, and it's located <laughs> on the fifth floor of the Supreme Court building. I get it. It used to be just this place for uh, old legal journals. Like, that's where they used to store them. But in the 1940s, some courthouse workers converted it into a workout area, and then it was later turned into this full basketball court. And apparently O'Connor didn't want to give up the exercise routine she'd gotten used to in Arizona. And once she found out that other women there in the building uh, wanted a place to work out as well, she booked the gym and asked the YWCA to send over an instructor to help them start up a class. <laughs> I mean, the class really took off and they started meeting daily and they even got custom printed T-shirts that read women work out at the Supreme Court. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I love that she co-opted what must have been a pretty male dominated space before she came onto the scene there, though. I mean, it just feels fitting seeing who she is. It, it actually, it also reminds me of an interview I read about uh, O'Connor where there was no women's bathroom at the Supreme Court when she first arrived. And the closest one was way down this hallway, far from the actual courtroom. So once again, in true O'Connor fashion, she just took over the men's restroom near her chambers. There. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think about, right? But I, I mean, I guess it was close to 200 years before the Supreme Court finally got a female justice. So it wasn't something they'd ever planned for. Yeah, and it just underscores how much of a trailblazer O'Connor really was. I mean, she, she once remarked, it's all right to be the first to do something, but I certainly didn't want to be the last woman on the Supreme Court. And, of course, thankfully, she she wasn't. And, you know, the current sitting Supreme Court actually includes three women. Of course, there's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Soda Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. And O'Connor herself retired back in 2005. As you may remember, she was caring for her husband, John, who'd been suffering for a while from Alzheimer's. Yeah, which... You know, it seems totally in keeping with the high value she's always placed on family. Although she did continue to juggle projects well into her retirement. In uh, in 2006, she started this free online civics education program. It's called iCivics, and it's for middle schoolers. It basically allows students to research and argue actual cases and to take part in these mock-ups of realistic government situations. And according to O'Connor, this venture to make learning civics fun is one of the most important things she's ever done. And so how did she do that? Well, she turned it into a video game. Oh, really? Yeah, so here's how she explained the idea to Parade. What we know is that kids like to play games on the computer. So I set up an advisory group of fabulous teachers to tell me what we needed to focus on in a civics course. And then we had games designed that focus on those parameters. Young people spend an average of 40 hours a week in front of a screen. One or two hours a week would do to teach them civics. And it seems to be working. I mean, iCivics is actually used uh, by educators in all 50 states. And about 5 million students use it each year. That's pretty awesome. Well, And after a lifetime of public service, it, it is inspiring that she still feels this drive to help spark the next generation's sense of civic duty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, given her track record, it's exactly what I would expect from her. And as she once put it, I'm not accustomed to sitting around and doing nothing. <laughs> That's for sure. And now, what do you say we follow her lead and keep ourselves busy with a good old-fashioned fact-off? You know what, Mango? I say this fact-off is now in session. So I'm not sure if you watched the Senate hearings with Justice Roberts, but it was a little frustrating from the outside because he refused to show any of his opinions. And his claim was that he needed the details of the case before he could speak about anything. And this has kind of become a fairly common and smart tactic for justices trying to be confirmed. But what's interesting is that uh, Justice O'Connor actually used the same tactic during her hearings decades prior. And you could tell from her opinions that she really believed that she needed the details and that they truly mattered. But 
one of the lawyers who assisted her for, for that hearing was a young Justice Roberts. Well, there's another thing I love about her judiciary hearing, and in it, she took the time to introduce her three sons to the chamber. She proudly listed out where they'd gone to school, what they'd majored in, their hobbies and accomplishments, you know, like being a state swimming (laughs) champ and skydiving or being like the family writer. I mean, all of these things she took the time to do. Isn't that pretty amazing? I love that. So one thing I love is how playful she could be. So in 2001, she made a guest appearance at the Shakespeare Theater in D.C., when they put King Lear on trial. (laughs) And apparently her verdict was not mad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, did you know that she had a pet bobcat in her youth? Apparently she tamed one on her ranch back home. That's nuts. So there was a New York Times piece that said Sandra Day O'Connor was the hardest judge to clerk for. And as you might guess, she wanted to know everything. And she wanted to be fully able to defend any side of any opinion she made. So she really worked her staff. But She also deliberated an extraordinary amount over who she chose. Like she picked clerks from a wide range of universities and across the political spectrum because she both wanted rigorous candidates, but she also wanted to be challenged in her thoughts as well. Well, I did read on the the other side of that, I guess you could say, is that she was really close to her clerks. She'd organize these picnics to see the cherry blossoms or host these jack-o'-lantern carving parties and even ask to see pictures and get updates on all of her grand clerks, as she called them. (laughs) So here's a story that's kind of sweet and heartbreaking. Sandra Day O'Connor cut her career short to be with her husband who had severe Alzheimer's because she wanted to take care of him and make his life more comfortable. And when he went to a facility, he actually started a romance with a fellow patient. And this is something that a lot of people with Alzheimer's do. But uh, for her, that meant supporting him through that as well. And as she put it, he was in a cottage and there was a woman who kind of attached herself to him. It was nice for him to have someone who was there to sometimes hold his hand and keep him company. And I'm glad. Wow, that is heartbreaking. All right. Well, here here's a fun one, a very different note. Did you know Sandra Day O'Connor is in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame? Did <laughs> you know there know. was the Cowgirl <laughs> Hall of Fame? Well, in her bio, she talks about how she learned to ride and shoot a gun by the age of eight. And for the record, she's the only Supreme Court justice in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. But, you know, the door's wide open for future cowgirls to join her. (laughs) I like that. And I like ending on something upbeat. So what do you say you take this week's trophy? All right. Well, thanks so much. Well, if we have missed any facts about Sandra Day O'Connor or any Supreme Court justices, for that matter, we would love to hear from you. You can always email us, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. You can also hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who?
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.